according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do we have a problem? Start again. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in uh, Proverbs 15. We crossed over to the 15th chapter a couple weeks ago, so we're in Proverbs 15 now. Is it recording? You can't tell. I don't like that look on your face. <laughs> of all the days to leave Christopher uh, not here, that was uh, bound to happen. But... All right, well, we'll just walk by faith and see what the Lord wants to do with it. Then. How about that? All right. Proverbs 15. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I want to sit on this verse for the next 20 years. I think we could, we could spend a lot of time focusing on, on this. Uh, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable or beautiful, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. All right, so there's our first three verses. That's where we are. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to set aside distractions and to humble us under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Lord gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your truth, we thank you for your faithfulness, we call upon your faithfulness this morning as we assemble together to receive instruction. Father, we are presenting ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So Father, this is for your glory, for your good pleasure, for the benefit of your Son, for his sake. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alright, so uh, I'll just go ahead and take it right from the top again and uh, with point one and then uh, pick up where we left off a week ago. Uh, but this chapter has some differences. Chapter 15 has some distinctions to observe in contrast with earlier chapters. Uh, not only in this section of the book, chapters 10 and following, but even all the way back to the beginning, chapter one and following, there's distinctions to be found here in chapter 15, including the fact that we have a diminished amount of the antithetical parallelism what's called antithetical parallelism, where you have an A statement and then a but, and then a B statement that is the opposite or something different or something in contrast. And so with the Hebrew poetry, we've discussed the different kinds of parallelism, synthetic, antithetical, uh, there's other kinds that, uh, that we have. And this chapter starts to introduce more and more of those other kinds because it's giving us less and less of the antithetical. And so, if a lot of the Psalms, a lot of the Proverbs, you can just scan down the left-hand column, and, you know, when you're looking at chapter 14, for example, and you see all the buts, right? But, 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 but. And, and, and so, when you're just scanning down the left-hand column of a, of a particular chapter, uh, you've got all those buts that start off the first word of that second half of the verse, and you know that's, a, that's an antithetical parallelism in most cases. Uh, well, there's fewer here in this chapter. In fact, they're absent in verse 3, verse 10, verse 11, 12, 23, 24, 30, 31, and 33. All of those verses are not antithetical parallelism. And so, uh, the, I won't read all of these, but you see in verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. So you see that it's a continuation. It's an expansion of the first part. So you still have an A and a B. You still have two halves of the poetry. But the B part is an expansion of the A part and uh, gives more information and explains what, you know, what, what's the big deal about the eyes of the Lord being in every place. Well, here's what the eyes of the Lord are doing. They're, they're watching you, right? They're watching you. That's why we cannot hide from God. So, uh, something else in this chapter, speech is a frequent topic. And that's where we are this morning in verses 1 and 2. Uh, but it comes back again in verse 4, verse 7, verses 23, 26, and 28. And uh, in some of those uh, verses, we're going to uh, incorporate them into uh, these earlier studies. So uh, we'll actually do ourselves a favor by covering verse 23 and verse 28 today 
means we won't have to necessarily go over that ground again down the road when we get uh, deeper into the, into the chapter. So speech is a frequent topic. The gentle answer or the harsh word, for example, the painful word. Uh, those are the two options set before us. Are we going to be soothing or are we going to be painful? How do we reply when anger is directed towards us? Thirdly, there are several references to Yahweh. Several. In fact, uh, more, almost more than any other chapter in Proverbs, but verse 3, 8, 9, 11, 16, 25, 26, 29, and 33, there's just all of these references to Yahweh. And uh, there are other chapters that have them, <coughs> for example, but when you see those twin towers in the center of that diagram there, you realize that chapter 15 and chapter 16 are full of, uh, of uses of Yahweh. In fact, 11 uses in chapter 16 is the most anywhere in the book of Proverbs, and 15 uses here, or 11 uses here in chapter 15 is the second most, tied with uh, back in chapter 3 when there were also nine uses in chapter 3. So that, that jumps out at you. That gets your attention as you look at these things kind of a, in a big picture. And then finally, uh, there are more abomination references in this chapter than any other chapter in the book of Proverbs. And uh, verse 8, verse 9, verse 26. So we have three abomination references in this chapter, and that's the most of, uh, of any uh, chapter in the book of Proverbs. So um, Proverbs 11, 16, and 20 all have two references each. Proverbs 29 also has two references, uh, but the three uses of Topneba, the Hebrew noun for abomination, uh, to have three in this chapter grabs our attention and uh, we will be noting those. Also, you'll notice verse 8, verse 9, verse 26, they also overlap with the Yahweh references. That if there's an abomination, that's an abomination to Yahweh. That's an abomination in Yahweh's frame of reference, okay? So if, uh, if we want to adopt a worldly attitude and we want to uh, accommodate sin and we want to embrace sin and call good evil and evil good and, and agree with the uh, with the uh, unbiblical philosophy of our age, uh, we, we can do that at our peril because in God's perspective to Yahweh, these things remain abominations and they are eternally abominations in his view. So we want to be clear on that. All right. Then under point two, we uh, get our first look here at verse one and basically verse one preaches itself. <clears throat> verse one preaches itself. When receiving verbal anger, we can verbally respond in one of two ways. When receiving verbal anger. And clearly, in both halves of these, uh, verse 1, is, is centered on a response. A gentle answer. Okay? If you're giving an answer, that means somebody has already said something to you. We don't generally answer things before things are said. Okay? <laughs> That's kind of rude to do that in any event. A gentle answer turns away wrath. So clearly, we there is wrath. The wrath is coming our direction. The wrath pre-exists our, our answer. And yet we want to respond with gentleness. We don't want to respond with pain. Because the harsh word is the painful word. Something that we say so we make them hurt. That's a harsh word. That's a painful word. We don't want to be causative of somebody else's pain. So a gentle answer turns away wrath. And that's the thing. We want to have this answer because we want to deflect. We want to, we want to, we want to you know, make, knock it to the right or knock it to the left or, or deflect it. We don't want to throw it back at them. That's the painful answer. That's where we want to uh, you know, catch it and throw it back at them, you know, double fold or whatever. Uh, no, we just want to deflect it. Just knock it to the left, knock it to the right, and don't even think about it after that. Just let it go. It's deflected, right? So... That's the, that's the, the better way. The, the alternative is the harsh word. And the harsh word makes it worse. The harsh word takes that wrath and stirs it up. And now you've got this boiling anger. All right? Now you've got, you just made it mad. You just doubled it up. Because, of course, he was carnal to begin with, whoever it is that's yelling at you. Now you're carnal. Now we've got double carnality going at it, one to another. Okay? It's just bad. Bad news all the way around. So, last week we spent the bulk of our time centering on the gentle answer because we have it and it's phrased several times in Proverbs and we have illustrations of it in the, throughout the Old Testament. And so this is a useful thing to, to, to center on. But just uh, let me grab these other ones here in Proverbs and then we, we uh, don't have to 
go back and reread those stories. But uh, Proverbs 25, 11. In case you missed it. Or even if you didn't miss it. A helpful reminder. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. And so instead of hurting them, you're actually blessing them. It's a word spoken in right circumstances. Verse 15 of the same chapter. By forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. So if your mother ever told you sticks and stones can break our bones, but words can never hurt us, this verse says words can break bones. A soft tongue breaks the bone. Proverbs 29.8. That's 8B, by the way. Because 8A is the flip side. <coughs> uh, where scorners set a city aflame. That's when you're stirring up the anger and you're responding with wrath. But wise men turn away anger. And it's the same deflecting. It's the same knocking into the side. The anger. So that's what we're called to do. And, uh, you know, if, uh, if someone's yelling at you, Jesus said, blessed are you, and men insult you, and hurl all kinds of abuse against you, and say all kinds of evil things against you. Well, it's not fun. You don't have to enjoy it, but you're blessed. So be happy. Just deflect it. Give a gentle answer back. Apply scripture, and uh, encounter it all joy. That's, uh, that's the provision there. Okay? Um, I think, too, uh, the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above are contrasted. That's why we took the time to look at James 3. James 3 is a great chapter to look at in any event, because that's the chapter that talks about the tongue and how you've got to tame it and how it's a wildfire if you don't, how dangerous is the tongue. And that's, that comes early in the, in the chapter. But then at the end of the chapter, in that same context, you've got the contrast between the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. And the wisdom from below is the one that has that anger and response and that fighting fire with fire and that... Um, because it's earthly, natural, demonic. There's jealousy and selfish ambition, dis disorder, and every evil thing. So it's that, that, that's every evil thing is when someone is hitting you with, with anger and wrath and you fight back with painful words and it's just, it gets worse from there. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle. That's the gentle answer that can turn away wrath. Full of mercy and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits unwavering without hypocrisy and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace and then who knows if uh, you know the, the, when you when you bless them when you don't curse them uh, you bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse you know you just gentle answer turn away the wrath and minister to them start praying for them love your enemies pray for those that persecute you and uh, you know, what a glory to Jesus Christ if down the road that person gets saved and uh, starts to uh, starts to grow. All right, now these other illustrations, uh, Joshua 22, I'm not going to go back to, but that was a misunderstanding. And in the misunderstanding, uh, they thought that uh, those other tribes felt that the tribes that were going across the River Jordan were building an idol. And so they came to, to wage war against those two and a half tribes on the in the eastern side of the Jordan, and they, they stopped and said, whoa, wait a minute, they had a gentle answer to turn away wrath. They explained to them why the altar they set up was a memorial and it was not an idol. And so the gentle answer turned away wrath there. In Judges 8, uh, the gentle answer turned away wrath there. And uh, in 1 Samuel 25, where we ran out of time, uh, that's what we're going to pick up on this morning, because that one also has an example of the negative. An example of the harsh, painful word. Same chapter has both examples in it. The harsh, painful word fans the flames. You know, if you're going to fight fire with fire, now you got two fires. How does that help? Okay, right? So, no, deflect the anger, deflect the wrath. The harsh or the painful word, all that does is fan the flames. So, Proverbs 15, uh, 1b, Proverbs 10, 12. There's a lot of these that speak to that. Proverbs 10, 12. I don't remember if we looked at these or not. But, uh, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. 15, 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. 
So just ask yourself, when they're, when they're being harsh towards you, do you want to make it worse or do you want to dampen it down? 28-25. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. And of course, we've already seen 29-8a, but in that same chapter, we've got 29-22. An angry man stirs up strife, but a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. You know, sometimes that's just the nature of their personality. They don't really want to argue about it, but they love the conflict. <laughs> they love causing the trouble. That's their arrogant personality. And they probably they might even agree with what you're saying, but just to be ordinary, they're going to take the other side and just start calling you names and doing whatever. And they're like, really? You know? And then what, what motivates that? Come on. You know? And uh, different things that you see there. Some of that shows up in the news sometimes, too. So, uh, so we have that. All right. Uh, so let's look, let's uh, now get our Old Testament background for this in 1 Samuel 25. Because this is the chapter that illustrates both the harsh answer and the gentle answer. Because there's a gentle answer that comes in verses 23 through 35. There's harsh answers that are coming earlier than that in verses 10, 11, 21, and 22. And it's curious to me how this event happens following the death of Samuel. Is there an impact there? What happens? You know, you ever think about what happens generationally? What happens culturally? What happens in a nation? What happens when a, a spiritual giant is promoted to heaven? Say, when, you're, when my mother went to heaven and her prayer stopped. <laughs> Did our conflict ramp up? Man, I didn't realize how powerful her prayers were while she was still on this earth, okay? Or, uh, you know, a, a, a tremendous Bible teacher, when, when you know, whoever you want to name it, passes away. What's the, what's the impact there when we lose a, an RB theme or a Billy Graham or, a, or, or what have you, okay? Spurgeon goes to be with the Lord. Does the next generation carry it on? Or is there a diminishing? Anyway, things I think about. So Samuel's gone. And uh, this event takes place, and it's curious to me. Um, so this is the introduction of Nabal and Abigail, and um, basically Nabal's getting over big time. Uh, he's prosperous. He has 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. Everything's going great. He's sharing his sheep and caramel. Everything's going great. Uh, the man's name was Nabal, which means foolish. His wife's name was Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite, on top of everything else. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David said, 10 young men. And David said to the young man, go to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, have long life, peace be to you, peace be to your house, peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers, your shepherds have been with us, See, they have connections, business dealings. They've been protecting those shepherds while they've been uh, hiding from Saul. <laughs> All right? And we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. <laughs> so he says, ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. Now, some people read this and it's awkward and they, they think, well, you're just like a beggar. You're just coming and asking for stuff and whatever. And, and you're violating grace by saying, well, we've done this for you. What are you going to do for us? Okay. And I, I don't think you can take it that way. I think when you understand the culture of the ancient world and the nature of how clans and tribes and nations work and what happens when uh, they are cooperating in, in the wilderness and, and, and that, this is normal. This is natural. And David's not naming a price. He's not saying you have to give me this, or you have to give me this amount, or you have to give me a minimum of such and such a... He's not naming a dollar amount. He is talking about the festive day. He is talking about grace and whatever you find at hand. And uh, allowing Nabal the privilege of responding in grace because David has treated him in grace. And that's legitimate. That is biblically leg legitimate. All right? So, when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and they waited. But Nabal answered David's servant. Now, this is the example of the harsh, painful words. 
This is an example of wrath. And that wrath is coming at David. Who is David? <laughs> Never heard of him. You know? Never heard of him. Right? Isn't that insulting? When you meet somebody famous but you don't know who they are, but they tell you their name as if they expect you're going to know who they are. Okay? And then it's embarrassing. I met one of the top Scrabble players and he told me his name and I didn't recognize the name. And then, so then I felt bad because he was insulted that I didn't know who he was. And, oh, okay, that's who you are. I'm sorry, I got out of that. Um, who is David? I never heard of him. And, uh, and uh, who is the son of Jesse? Well, now, wait a minute. If you know he's the son of David, Jesse, then you know who he is. So your second question just proved that your first question was ridiculous. All right. Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? And it shows the score. So, okay, I know who you are. I don't care. I'm not impressed. And uh, there are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. There seem to be a lot of renegades roaming around the wilderness. There seem to be a lot of renegades. And, and you know, there's undoubtedly a bounty and a reward. I should just go claim that. Go tell Saul where you're hiding. Okay, so just go away, don't bother me, and I won't tell Saul where you are. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? <coughs> so the workers are out there, they're shearing the sheep, they're working, they're going to take a cut, they're going to receive some food, they're going to receive, some of those sheep aren't going to go to market because some of those sheep are going to get eaten. All right, so that's cost of doing business, and Nabal doesn't want to pay that cost. And he certainly he resents paying it to his shares, and he certainly doesn't want to give any extra to David and his men. So basically, what does he get? He gets free, free defense. Free is like, you know, Europe. And they, they throw all their money into socialism because America's defending them militarily. And they're not paying the military bills. And so they're not paying military bills, and they got all this money to throw at welfare programs and stuff. Anyway. So, well, what happens then when the, the people that have been defending you at no charge say, well, okay, we're done. <laughs> or you got to pay your fair share. This is, this is your responsibility to protect your, 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 your stuff. Anyway, that's the harsh answer. So, uh, whose origin I do not know, as if they're bastards and they're shady characters. So David's young men retraced their way and went back and came and told him according to all these words. So David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. He says, all right, armor up. And um, so each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. About 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. And so he's now going to answer with a harsh word. And his harsh word is going to be with the business end of a sword. Okay, And that's how he's going to respond. This is a terrible example here. And he's on the verge of doing something unthinkable. He's actually on the verge of doing something that could disqualify him from the throne. Okay? Think about that. If you're in a mode where you're preparing for ministry, let's say, and then something happens, and wow. Well, all right. Thankfully, though, Abigail is the illustration of the gentle answer who can deflect, that turns away wrath. And uh, so... Uh, one of the young men that go and tell Abigail, saying, uh, you, you might want to know what your, your husband did here. Because <laughs> um, David sent messengers to greet our master, and he scorned him. And yet, and look at the testimony here. The men were very good to us. We were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. You know, they were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Man, they blessed us. They blessed us for all this time. Weeks or months or whatever length of time it was. Now therefore know and consider what you should do for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. So these men have at least enough sense to go and talk to the woman of excellence. So Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and uh, five, which means that whatever they were prepared for, she, she's probably going to go without dinner that night because this is the meal that was already prepared, and so that's what she's going to bring. 
and uh, five measures of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs. I mean, you talk about emptying the, the, the hamper or emptying the, the uh, what do you call that, the pantry, the food closet out of the kitchen. All right. And so then she comes. She says, go on before me. Behold, I'm coming after you. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal. And so uh, they meet David. And um, David's still thinking evil. Surely in vain I've guarded all that this man in the wilderness. Nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. He has returned me evil for good. Well, that's true. He's not wrong about that. But he's wrong about how he's now responding. It's wrong to reply to return evil for good, but it's also wrong to return evil for evil. May God do so uh, to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. But look what he's about to do. And I, and, and I wonder, is, that, is this reflective of the departure from Samuel? You know, it's like a patriarchal torch has been passed. And uh, Samuel's now gone, and David's now the, probably the senior prophet alive in Israel. Who knows? I don't know how, we don't know how old Nathan is or some of the other prophets of that generation. <coughs> but the accountability is certainly there. So uh, Abigail saw David. She hurried and dismounted from her donkey. And here's the gentle answer. Found her face before David, bowed herself to the ground, fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. Now, this is, this is highly unusual that a woman would be speaking to a military commander that would be speaking to uh, uh, a... Uh, he's really the captain of a, of a mercenary band at this point. And, uh, and, and legally, culturally, I mean... She has no authority. She can't negotiate in any way. She she belongs to Nabal, and and um, this is uh, this is curious. So on me alone be the blame. Look at that. You know what that is? That's kinsman redeemer. That's uh, somebody who's innocent, willing to be counted as guilty. This is this is a type of Christ, because she's not the guilty party, but she's willing to accept the guilt, willing to be the substitute willing to identify as the kinsman redeemer. Please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Okay, had I been there, had I seen it, then uh, you would not have been insulted the way that you were. So, uh, so the offer to be a kinsman redeemer. Do you think that you think that has any kind of impact in somebody like David, who's a man after God's own heart, who's been saturated in the Word of God from his childhood? Of course. I don't think there's a doctrine any more fitting than kinsman redeemer that would have touched him in quite the same way. So now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives. Since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and avenging yourself by your own hand. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? You are on the verge of becoming your own redeemer, your, your own avenger. The blood avenger is the same word. It's the same Hebrew word as the boel. It's the same as the kinsman redeemer. And David, you're going to take matters into your own hands and you are going to just be a blood avenger and go kill Nabal because you were mad at him. But Yahweh kept you from doing that. Because Yahweh directed the circumstances. Yahweh had those servants come and find me. And Yahweh had all this stuff ready to go. And I'm bringing you all this stuff. And Yahweh is in charge of this. And thank God that he kept you from sinning. So uh, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. And let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. The Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil will not be found in you all your days. And so she has all this truth and all this gentle answer. Everything is just doctrinal right down the line. And uh, anyway, she's got an understanding of the, of the uh, Davidic covenant. I think even before the Davidic covenant is given. How, how amazing is that? And uh, that Yahweh will certainly make an enduring house. 
because David, my Lord, is fighting the battles of Yahweh. So, um, should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound to the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. This is a, actually a remarkable Davidic prophecy as far as the, David personally, as far as the Christ is concerned. So David responds in verse 20, 32. Uh, he said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to me. <laughs> he knows. She just saved his life. Her doctrine woke him up. And uh, blessed be your discernment and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. None of us can be a kinsman, can be a personal blood avenger. Only Jesus Christ can go and deal with that. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left in Abel until the morning light as much as one male. So now he realizes, you know, I made a vow and I've got to break my own vow. He says he has to not do what he said he was going to do. So David received from her hand what she brought him and said to her, go to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. And so that's kind of the illustration there. And then the rest of the story as the chapter unfolds, uh, Nabal's going to drop dead. And um, uh, when, when <coughs> in particular, when Abigail has to report her dealings with David. Uh, let's see here. Abigail came to Nabal. Behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until morning. And in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So there you go. Ten miserable days to suffer the sin and the death and, and deal with that. Okay? Anyway. And then, now that she's a widow, David marries her. How about that? <laughs> all right. So that seems strange to us. I know. That's uh, awkward thing. He adds her to his other wives. So, the harsh, painful word just makes matters worse. It fans the flames. And what, what would have happened had Abigail not been on the scene? You know, had God not been very graciously had somebody else to step in there? All right, another example. 1 Kings 12. Do you know this one? <coughs> First Kings 12. So now we're fast-forwarding two generations. David's been king for 40 years. Solomon's been king for 40 years. Now Rehoboam becomes king. And as Rehoboam becomes king, uh, he's got an opportunity to, uh, to learn and to make use of, of Solomon's uh, advisors. And, uh, and yet he doesn't. And so um, Rehoboam uh, went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now, uh, when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, he was living in Egypt. He'd been in exile, been a political exile in Egypt. He had fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they sent and called him and Jeroboam, and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, uh, Your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of, of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. So Rehoboam said to them, Depart for three days, then return to me, and the people departed. So King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today, and will serve them, and grant them their petition, and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. And then they're giving some advice here that he needs to change Solomon's policy. And it's curious because these guys were Solomon's advisors. And it's like they're admitting, you know, that his policy was not great. That at the end of his life, Solomon was a wreck. That Solomon died the sinner to death with all those women. And Solomon had forced labor among the Jewish people so he could build his temple and do the things he was doing. So Solomon started great and ended terribly. And the counselors here are, are as much as admitting that. Telling Rehoboam, you better start doing things differently. But he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. Well, I want to see what my fellow millennials think. 
you know, I want to go grab some other, you know, non-thinking druggies or whatever they do, I don't know. Um, I don't want to paint every millennial with the same brush since I've birthed several. Um, anyway, this is the problem. He's going to listen to the young guys. He's going to listen to these, these, these punks. He's going to grab the trendy, you know, Google Facebook crowd and run foreign policy based upon what, what uh, social media tells him to do. And that's not going to go well. Okay? So the young men, you know, so what counsel do we give that we may answer this people have spoken to be saying, lighten the yoke which your father put on us. The young men who grew up with him said, oh, no, no, no. Thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you, your father made our yoke heavy. Now you make it lighter for us, but you shall speak to them. My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Wow. Okay? And that's even more ugly in the Hebrew. It says what you think it says. That, uh, yeah. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, I will discipline you with scorpions. Okay? So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had directed, and he gives them the harsh answer. The king answered the people harshly, the same term that we have in Proverbs 15. For he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him, and he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. And, uh, and so what's going to happen? He loses ten tribes. <laughs> Civil war. Jeroboam leads ten tribes, and they, they, they break free and establish the, the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, so, you know, there you have it. And uh, the consequences there. Anyway, that's the uh, example of that. Then James 3, 5, we talk about the tongue is a fire. We looked at that already. That uh, how great a fire is fanned by the, you know, the flames are fanned by that tongue. Just that tiny little tongue, like a, a bridle in the horse's mouth or the bit in the horse's mouth or the rudder on a ship. The tongue is just such a small little part of the body, and yet it, uh, it can fan the flames. All right, so verse 1 preaches itself. We come along and spend a couple hours helping out. Now, verse 2, verse 2b also preaches itself, but 2a, we're going to spend some time on 2a. It is quite profound. So let me get back to Proverbs 15. This is point 3 in the development. Verse 2b also preaches itself, but 2a is quite profound. Let me read it. Uh, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable or good or beautiful. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge beautiful, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. All right, so the second part's a no-brainer. We get that. The mouth of fools, that's what they spout. That's what they do. Uh, and, and we've had that repeatedly through 15 chapters of the Proverbs. Okay? But that first part, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge beautiful. When wise people communicate God's wisdom, we're not talking just any knowledge. We're not talking, you know, trivia or useless facts. We're talking about the mouth of the wise makes knowledge beautiful. We're talking about the wisdom of the Word of God. When wise people communicate God's wisdom, that very act beautifies Bible doctrine. It beautifies Bible doctrine. And so it's not, it's not just an adjective for beautiful. It's a verb. It's a causative verb. The hippo stem is causative. Causing to be good. Causing to be beautiful. When wise people communicate God's wisdom, that very act, the act of preaching, the experience of preaching, the spiritual work that happens. This is why, uh, you know, I'm thankful for the website. I'm thankful for MP3s. Let's get caught up. But there's a dynamic missing when you're not assembled with the saints and when you're not hearing as the Spirit is speaking. The Spirit communicates through the speaker and the Spirit hears in the, in the hearer. There's a dynamic at work when the saints are assembled. And there is a beauty. There is a beauty, a beautification of something that's already beautiful to start with. 
Although, the point continues, although the word of God has intrinsic goodness, wise preaching makes it even more attractive. Makes it even more attractive. And if you need an illustration for this verb, that illustration comes in 2 Kings 9 and verse 30 with a very, very wicked and ugly woman who you can dress up to look pretty. Because the woman is Jezebel. And probably not a, a, an uglier female soul in the Old Testament. And yet, <clears throat> 2 Kings 9.30, when Jehu came to Jezreel, by the way, Jehu is a valid word to scrabble in case you're playing. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And this verb, to adorn her head, she's beautifying her hair. She's doing the makeup and all the other stuff. And looked out the window, and as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Anyway. Yeah, you can, you can take an ugly woman. You can put a pig on a lipstick. No, put lipstick on a pig, right? You don't put pig on a lipstick. But when you put lipstick on a pig... Yeah, it's one of my favorite Sarah Palin quotes, and I messed it up. But you understand, I mean, you can have an external beauty, you can beautify something that's really rather ugly, and uh, what are you really accomplishing? But can you beautify something that's already infinitely beautiful? The Bible says you can. Because the Word of God is already good, it's already pure, it's already beautiful. And yet, you beautify the beautiful. See how that works? You beautify the already beautiful. And then what do you have? More even more beautiful. That's right. Even more beautiful. Because we have that appreciation for the beauty. And, uh, and we have that. All right. So, and if you want, by the way, the same chapter has another example, another Hithol stem. The Hithol is the causative stem in Hebrew. Another hypho stem of the same verb appears in verse 13 of the same chapter. Makes a cheerful face. So a joyful heart makes a cheerful face. It's causative. It causes that face to be good. Because cheerful faces are good faces. Grumpy faces are not good faces. Okay? Just if you're teaching this to your kids or Sunday school or whatever. Okay? Ooh, look at that grumpy face. Ooh, look at that grumpy face. Ooh, look at that pouty face. Sticking out that bottom lip in a big pouty face kind of a thing. My grandmother used to say, if you keep that lip stuck out like that, a chicken's going to come along and poop on it. <laughs> well, don't want that to happen. <laughs> I'm going to stop pouting. I'm going to stop sticking my bottom lip out like that. That, that's, that sounds gross. And I've never forgotten it. I'm almost 50 years old now, and I haven't forgotten it. So, you got a pouty face, you got an unhappy face, you got a cheerful face, and that's the good face to make good, to make cheerful. And it's causative. What is causative? The joyful heart. The joyful heart. Anyway, so how you are in your heart, how it has reflected in your bearing, how it's reflected in your speech. Things like that. Um, so it's causative. But back to verse 1 now. Or back to verse 2. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge good. I think knowledge is good anyway for its own sake. It's intrinsically good. Knowledge is always better than ignorance. Right? Knowledge is always good. But to be made good, to be made beautiful, even more so. So we're adorning it. We're taking, you know, we're not, instead of, instead of putting, you know, lipstick on a pig, you're putting lipstick on, on a pretty girl. Okay? She's already pretty to start with and now you're adding, you're accentuating, you're, you're, you're beautifying the already beautiful. Okay? And then you're realizing, wow! See? As my anniversary approaches. <laughs> Alright? As, uh, you know, you realize, wow! This girl's beautiful. 
say. And this Sunday is the first Sunday. Yeah. On the uh, so I'm at Sharon on Wednesday the 9th. I came back on Sunday the 13th, Mother's Day, looking for her, thinking, where's that girl I saw last Wednesday? And she wasn't there. She was out of town. She had gone to visit Rhonda in Florida, so she was gone on Mother's Day. And then, but on the 20th, May 20th, she was back. She was in church. She was attending the Greek class at 6 o'clock on a Sunday night. Or maybe it was 5 o'clock on a Sunday night. 5 o'clock on a Sunday night. Yeah, there was a Greek class. I thought, wow, she's taking Greek. And then I learned her name. That was even better. Yeah. And so I learned her name, and she was in a Greek class. And I learned that she was teaching Sunday school. I found out, well, I didn't see her in the morning. She was teaching Sunday school, but I saw her in the evening. Okay, she's taking this Greek class. I thought, wow. So here's a woman with inner beauty, a believer that loves the Lord, that's growing in the Word of God, plus outer beauty on top of that. Oh, my goodness. <coughs> How is she not married? <laughs> and so you have what's already beautiful, and you make it more beautiful. So, yeah, that was on the 20th. I learned her name was Sharon. didn't know her last name yet. And that's when I called my mom and told her I met a girl. And then it was the following Sunday on the 27th. So we're coming up on this weekend that makes the anniversary on that. Sunday, May 27th, when um, I left the evening service and didn't want to drive back to Fort Hood right away. So I said, uh, would you like to get some coffee? So she said, I don't drink coffee. <laughs> yeah. But I'll go with you. So we ended up at Amy's ice cream instead of coffee. All right. So we're going to take something that's already beautiful, like the Bible, the Word of God, the living and abiding Word of God. Bible doctrine is already beautiful. And we're going to beautify it. We're going to accentuate it. We're going to highlight it. We're going to dress it up. We're going to present it in such a way that it is just, wow. Okay? And that's what it does. The Word of God is already intrinsically beautiful. You don't have to dress it up. You don't have to make it that way. It already is that. And, we, and I love Psalm 19. I think this is a, a, a neat psalm. It just outlines why doctrine is so amazing. <clears throat> psalm 19, 7 and following. Where you have all these expressions. Pure, sure, right. I'm sorry, perfect, sure, right. Pure, clean, true. Desirable. Desirable. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And so some folks want to end the poetry there and stop the description there with kind of six adjectives. All of these are different terms for doctrine, from you know law to testimony to precepts to commandments to fear to judgments. But then when he encapsulates it, he says they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And so they are desirable. I have an intellectual desire. <coughs> I also have a, a taste, an appetite, because they are sweet, sweeter than the honey and the dripping of the honeycomb. And so I'm, 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 I'm finding this desirable. I'm finding it desirable in, in multiple ways. So, the Word of God is intrinsically beautiful, <coughs> even without being preached, even if it's just in a, in a Bible sitting on a shelf. It's a beautiful thing. But when you pull that Bible off the shelf, and you gather together with the body of Christ, and the Holy Spirit is among us, and the Word of God is being preached, then it's even more beautiful. It is made more beautiful. Because now we have the experience, now we have the the um, blessing of fellowship, of communication, of, of exalting the Word of God. 
and the speaker can convey the beauty that he sees in it, and the hearer can respond with either the appreciation of that same beauty or maybe even adding to it. Okay? Because we have different tastes and we have different perspective on beauty and things of that nature, but we all see the same beauty in the Word of God. If that makes sense. So, by making knowledge beautiful, joy and delight are produced in the hearer. So as I get back now to, Psalm, to, to Proverbs 15, we see in this context, what happens when we beautify the beautiful word? By beautifying the beautiful word, what happens? Joy and delight are produced in the hearer. It's a production. There's, there's the causative verb, and then there's the production, which we see in 15.23. A man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. You know what those are? Those are productions. Those are internal productions. And they get triggered. You know, what is it that makes you laugh? What is it that makes you cry? What is it that makes you respond? What are the stimulus stimuli that can do that? See, you know, lots of things. But you think about joy that is produced, that is, that is generated because of the apt answer that's given. Or the delight that's produced, that's triggered, that's the, that's the response to the stimulus of a timely word. And so the word of God, when, when a man of wisdom, when a, when a tongue of a man or a woman of wisdom, when the tongue of the wise, and in the wise there is plural, by the way. It's not just one guy. It's when wise people speak doctrine. When wise people are communicating the word of God, it beautifies knowledge. So joy and delight are produced in the hearer. So it's a... It's a thrill. It's an absolute thrill. I, I tell you, when I'm, if I'm watching the news and then somebody gets on there and, and he actually uh, speaks scripture and he says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And I'm like, wow, that was a Bible verse on national TV. <laughs> How cool is that? You know? And uh, Or in the aftermath of a, of a shooting and a man gets on there and says, well, this is terrible, but all things work together for good. God's going to bring us through this. Wow. That triggers a joy. That triggers a delight. Those things are produced when uh, beautiful knowledge is beautified. Joy and delight are produced in the hearer. The cause of beauty has a consequential appreciation. It has a consequential appreciation. So if, if something is beautiful, and then what do they say? Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, right? So something that's, that's beautiful, a doctrine or a, a woman or, or whatever, something that's beautiful, then, but if nobody sees it, if nobody appreciates it, if nobody shares in that experience, right? So it's a causative beauty that has consequential appreciation. We then can share it together. We can highlight the beauty of the word of God. And, and, and the speaker communicates what he finds beautiful. And the hearer resonates with their, with their human spirit with what they find beautiful. And it's that shared experience. Okay? For a consequential appreciation. That's not wrong. God has designed us with taste buds to appreciate good tasting food. With, with, with noses to appreciate good smells, right? With eyes to appreciate beautiful things. If they are visually attractive, that's not wrong. That's not wrong, okay? And some of this, too, is cultural. Some of this is a little awkward sometimes. The, uh, we had some pretty vulgar Hebrew this morning already in, uh, in some places. When, when Abigail is, is, is said to be beautiful, <laughs> that means she's well shaped. She has a pleasing form, right? That's, I mean, that's just the idiom. That's the expression. And we know what that is, but I don't know. I, I just don't think we talk about that in, in our culture today. 
Or if we do, it comes across as being sexist. It comes across as being crude. It comes across as being, you know, uh, inappropriate. Then if we, you know, see a, a shapely woman and say, "Wow, that's a shapely woman," okay, right? We don't say that, but the Bible does. The ancient world did, okay. The ancient world did, and it's not wrong. And so, if something is attractive, you can acknowledge the attractive. Nothing wrong with that perspective, okay? And it doesn't mean, of course, you're not going to take it to lust and you're not going to do all the, the, the perversions of things. But you can acknowledge, well, that's, that's a pretty girl or what have you, okay? So, uh, we have it again in the next chapter in Proverbs 16, 23 and 24. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. So not only is the word of God going forth, but the very heart, the fact that this Bible teacher loves the word of God that he's preaching, it adds a component of power and beauty and glory to the word as it goes forth. So the heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. And, and, and that right there, that's the best homiletics class you can ever teach. We're not talking about the ums and the, the critique forms and the, the, uh, the, the Toastmasters methodology of how to project your voice to the back of the room so the, 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 the old man that keeps insisting on sitting in the back of the room can hear you. You know, there are practical homiletic uh, things that we get across. But this verse here says the best homiletic. You want to add persuasiveness to your speech? Love the Lord. Have a heart that loves God. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Which is, I think, why Satan imitates that so much. That's why he sends in his liars, and that's why the flattery is the satanic perversion of this. Flattery is just, you know, it, it's, it's a mockery of what the sweet teaching of the Word of God is supposed to do. <coughs> so we want to have discernment to know the difference between the love expressions of beautifying and the, and the uh, satanic seduction of, of flattery. So this is what happens. By making knowledge beautiful, it's a causative beauty with a consequential appreciation. The fact that it is beautiful, that we have the capacity to appreciate the beauty. We have the capacity to appreciate that God designed us. The human realm is designed aesthetically. We have aesthetics. We are a creation. We talked about this last night at dinner. That we could have been goats, right? He could have designed us to just eat grass, you know, and eat thorns and eat thistles and just eat whatever. And, and But no, he gave us a palate. He gave us taste buds. He gave us capacity for things that smell good and things that taste good and things that, that, that uh, you just enjoy eating and go, wow, I want to eat that again. Or things that taste terribly, so I'm never eating that again. <laughs> things that smell great, things that smell nasty. And so the good smells you want closer, the bad smells you want further away. <clears throat> All of those things are designed to teach us. All of those things are part of natural revelation that reveal God and who he is. And so, same thing with beauty. Read Song of Solomon. There's beauty there. The man's telling her how beautiful she is. The woman's telling her husband how beautiful he is. It's, a, it's an erotic book. It's, it's all about appreciating the beauty as it's beheld. And it's all legitimate. <coughs> this beautified... Oh, I'm out of time. I've got a scene of Disto. Um, okay. We'll pick up here. <laughs> Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you, Father, for, um, man, this, this whole message this morning, Father. I, I think of um, my childhood pastors, Ken Jensen and John Eichmann. I think about Ralph Braun. I think about R.B. Theme. I think about Glenn Carnegie. I think about faithful pastors that have fed the Word of God in such a way that it's just clear. I think about Emil Schmidt, Father. I think about John Miller. These are, these, are, these are men that have a heart for you. As they communicate the word of God, Father, it just it, it comes across in a beautiful way. A beautiful thing beautified. 
And I thank you for the blessings that we have to, to, uh, to grow in such a way. So, Father, I uh, pray for this message. I pray for upcoming messages as we continue throughout uh, this chapter. Be faithful, Father. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.